This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Hi, this is Elena Connor Snibby. And I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today we're excited to bring you another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation in the Stanford Discussions series. The Center for Social Innovation is a growing community of leaders committed to a just, prosperous, and sustainable world. The Center offers leadership development programs and publishes our award-winning quarterly journal, the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Today I'm interviewing Paul Lamb, Principal of Man on a Mission Consulting, about technology-driven changes we are likely to see in nonprofits and non-governmental organizations over the next decade. Paul has worked in the nonprofit sector for nearly two decades, both in direct social services and in leveraging technology for the social good. He consults on a number of community-based technology projects. He also writes for numerous publications and is a frequent radio contributor on social and technology issues. Paul, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, John. First up, tell us what interests you about technology in the social benefits sector? Well, it's just a really exciting time for nonprofits, John. There's an incredible amount of creativity happening in the technology space, and that creativity is spilling over into the social space like never before. Can you give us an example or two? Sure. First, let me back up uh, real quick and attempt to put the future in perspective by pointing out how far nonprofits and their use of technology has come over the last decade or so. We have basically gone from a time in the mid-1990s when most nonprofits were not in the, on the Internet and, and using email to a period in the early 2000s when we saw a dramatic increase in the number of nonprofits and NGOs establishing a web presence and also experimenting with uh, a variety of new tools uh, during the first dot-com wave. In uh, more recent years, we've seen a further flourishing of nonprofit technology activity as nonprofit technology providers have developed uh, sector-specific tools for such things as fundraising and client management. And as the open source movement has put forth a, a somewhat radical notion that nonprofits could now have access to free or low-cost technology tools or even develop those tools themselves, a fundamental shift has, has occurred. And the current phase, what uh, some people are calling Web 2.0, has put the power of technology further into the hands of the social sector as well as their clients and is responsible for a, a second flowering, if you will, propelled by user-generated content and people-to-people -people sharing. But hasn't this amazing technology leap, if you will, left social benefit organizations a little confused and, and frankly behind the curve, given the rapid pace of technology change? 
Well, it certainly has left many feeling overwhelmed, and as is usually the case, the larger, better resourced organizations are able to keep up with the changes and even propel them forward, while the smaller and less well-resourced organizations are left to fight uh, basically for the technology table scraps. But at the same time, for those nonprofits and NGOs who are able to put some time into researching and understanding new tools and trends, there is an incredible array of, of you know, new free and low-cost platforms and tools uh, in an environment of technology-enabled opportunity, um, basically the likes of which has never been available before. Sure, the, you know, the rate of change is mind-boggling to anyone, even, even the tech elite and the, and the early adopters. Uh, maybe it's just me, but, but if I had to trade a, a safe status quo environment for a period of dynamic change, experimentation, and challenging new opportunities, I would surely choose the, the latter. Again, can you give an example or two of the dynamic technology-driven change spilling over into the social sector? Yeah, let's look at blogging and online virtual reality worlds, for example. A little over a year ago, blogging was considered the realm of the geeky and uh, attention-starved. And to some degree it still is, but if you look at the, the websites of many nonprofit organizations, you now see staff and supporters and even clients themselves participating in direct dialogues about what the organization does and telling its story using audio, video, and other multimedia and interactive tools. And it's not just the big players either. Um, recently, a, a friend of mine, a wonderful woman, woman by the name of Beth Cantor, asked me to contribute to her own individual effort to help support a young Cambodian student, a woman who was orphaned as a child, to help get tuition to put her through college in Cambodia, uh, the total cost of which I understand is about a little less than $1,000 US annually. And I responded because she set up a, a blog that allowed me to access a, a self-made video, a video that she had made and posted on YouTube that documented her effort and showed numerous pictures telling the story of the woman she is trying to help. And also her blog included a, a donation tool called Chip In that allowed me to donate instantly online. Now, all the tools she used were free and, and, fairly, uh, and are fairly easy to set up, even for the non-techie. So it's these, these tools, often developed for commercial purposes, that are now being adopted for use in very powerful ways in the, in the social sector, even at the micro level. You mentioned online virtual reality worlds as another example. Are you referring to things like Second Life and multiplayer online games? Exactly. Uh, for those folks unfamiliar with Second Life, it's an online virtual reality world that allows the user to anonymously explore a variety of self-created spaces, um, connect with other individuals, and even conduct commercial transactions in a world that's it's almost like a, another dimension. Second Life has its own currency, its own economy, a news service, and allows the users to purchase virtual land and operate various businesses in, in the world of, of Second Life. A number of large corporations and educational institutions are actively setting up operations and educational venues in Second Life, including companies like Cisco, Intel, IBM, and multiple um, universities. The, the Starwood Hotel chain, which is the, 
chain that owns the Sheraton and Weston hotels is even building a new hotel in Second Life virtually, uh, allowing anyone in, in Second Life to visit it and provide feedback before the real world version is actually built. How is all of this relevant to the social sector? The, the answer to, to that is um, nonprofits and NGOs are also creating a presence in Second Life and attempting to raise consciousness on issues, you know, everything ranging from the genocide in the Sudan to environmental causes. And in fact, a new office complex or a nonprofit commons is actually being launched by TechSoup and others in Second Life uh, in February of this year, where current organizations can set up virtual offices, they can host guests, fundraise, and conduct educational seminars for basically anyone with a broadband connection and a Second Life account, which is, which is free. Again, there is some incredible stuff happening in the world of Web 2.0, and the social sector is also riding the crest of, of this rising wave. Let's move on to talk about the future. What are some of the important trends you see happening, and what is on the horizon for nonprofits when it comes to greater, one would assume, technology adoption and integration? Um, what should the social sector care about? I think uh, there are a number of key technology trends worth paying close attention to. Some of the most important ones in my mind include uh, things like greater mobility and mobile devices, uh, better organizational transparency and success metrics, things like enhanced community mapping, a variety of open technologies, and new and more powerful direct connections between people and, and organizations. And I'm happy to, to go into specifics on, on those. Okay, let's start with mobility. What, uh, do you mean ubiquitous wireless access, mobile devices, that sort of thing? Yeah, but not just the, the network and devices supporting always-on, everywhere-available mobile access. It's such things as the Internet. Those things are, are basically already here. More importantly, the ability to leverage those technologies to do things differently as social service organizations is what's really exciting. For example, as wireless devices become capable of allowing you to do almost anything you used to do, or used to have to do in an office, it begs the question, you know, why bother paying to rent an office, which is typically the second biggest expense after staff or for um, nonprofit organizations when you can operate in uh, an untethered mobile environment. And if you were an organization serving the homeless, for example, wouldn't it, you know, make good sense to have as many of your people as possible out on the street conducting intake and outreach, gathering and sharing real-time information on the spot instead of waiting for people to come into an intake site. Now, obviously, there, you know, there still needs to be physical locations to do all kinds of things like health checkups and you know, centers where, where people can um, get food and, and sleep and that sort of thing. But I think there's also a lot of room for integrating some of these new mobile technologies in a way that can really cut expenses and improve the quality of, of services. Um, and mobile technologies will make this, you know, this, this opportunity increasingly possible 
as well as offer new ways to fundraise and communicate with and recruit constituents anywhere and, and any time. What do you mean by, by that? Well, how will mobility, for example, help with fundraising? Well, beyond what is already beginning to happen with uh, such things as text messaging on mobile phones being used as an avenue for instantaneous fundraising, um, imagine the ability to walk down the street and receive an alert on your cell phone when another passerby nearby has an open profile that suggests, say, an interest in rainforests, and it just so happens you belong to a global organization that supports reforestation projects, um, you could potentially connect with that person right on the spot or even save their information for follow-up at a later time with just uh, you know a few button presses. And obviously that could go in the other direction as well, where someone um, gets in touch with you uh, based on uh, the ability to access your profile. Um, imagine you know your your average Joe or, or Joan strolling down the street and being able to pick up his or her cell phone or mobile device um, and point it at an, an advertisement for a nonprofit uh, cause or agency as they drive by it, you know, on on the street or on a billboard or what have you, and for them to be able to receive information about that organization on the spot. Social mobile software and services will make this uh, increasingly possible and, and likely. Let me, let me give another example, going back to Second Life. Imagine your organization having a virtual office, say, in, on Second Life, with designated staff receiving alerts on a, on a mobile device when a, a visitor, um, and this is, I'm referring to a virtual, an online visitor or client, shows up at your virtual doorstep. And the staff, or <clears throat> for lack of a better word, greeter, could be literally anywhere as as with the visitor and will not have to be seated in a cubicle in, in a you know in a real world office somewhere naturally this will not be appropriate for every organization um, but for many it could help to save costs offer 24 7 service and provide the ability uh, to serve an increasingly mobile worldwide audience okay what about another trend you mentioned, like, uh, I believe you said, organizational transparency and success metrics? One of, the, one of the biggest problems that nonprofits and social benefit organizations and their funders face is the ability to know how impactful their work really is. Currently, the, the best way we know to measure the success rate of a particular program or organization is by a series, usually of somewhat one-dimensional quantitative and qualitative measurements. Things like how many clients served, program completion rates, and what we learn from, say, focus groups and interviews, which are really only a snapshot in, in time. Funders and supporters must rely on what basically what their grantee reports tell them, which means taking an organization's word for it, not that organizations shouldn't be trusted, but organizations are incentivized to make the results sound as good as possible in order to secure additional ongoing funding. That's just a, you know, a reality. It's the way it is. So basically their in-house assessment is inherently biased. So how can we really know the effectiveness of an organization? The answer is we, we often don't, and organizations that are better resourced or better storytellers may win out regardless of how good a job they're actually doing. 
down the road and as we become more comfortable with more open and direct participatory systems, that will undoubtedly change. For example, think of what would happen if all funders, staff, supporters, and clients had access to the same information about a particular organization and its work in, the, you know, in a given community. More explicitly, what if a funder or supporter could know in real time today how many graduates of, say, a job training program were working today, literally this day, at what wages, with or without benefits, how long have they been working, how have their wages increased or not over time, those sorts of things. And what if they could also uh, hear, in other words, what if the supporters could also hear from the majority of program participants directly and immediately and not wait for a report, you know, six months or a year down the road or simply you know, reading a testimonial of a single program participant on the organization's homepage. This would be extremely useful information both for the organization and its supporters to have. Despite some obvious challenges regarding privacy and information security, the, the trend is clearly moving in this direction. And some examples include in, uh, in San Francisco there is a couple, there are a couple efforts, one to survey do HIV and AIDS surveying and to conduct air quality, both of those efforts using handheld devices uh, on the streets, uh, literally on the streets of San Francisco. And that information is fed into a central database and that information then made available to the organizations that work on those issues in, in, in real time. Additionally, there's this year a new service that's being launched called greatnonprofits.org which will allow anyone to post a review and rate the work that social service organizations are doing, a kind of a, an Amazon or eBay review system for the social sector. Okay, well, what about community mapping? Well, another challenge we face in the social sector, not to mention in the commercial world, is the ability to determine whether or not programs or certain services are overlapping or redundant and whether they are cooperating well within a fixed area. For example, you may have a multitude of food kitchens in a given geographical proximity serving the same clientele. The traditional approach has been to have a government agency provide a directory of services or create a collaboration group uh, among the various agencies. And the problem is that the information in these directories and collaboratives is not necessarily up to date. It may not be all inclusive and doesn't necessarily help to answer that really difficult question of whether the service agencies in a particular area are not enough. You know, are there too many or are they competing for the same clientele? So new, a number of new tools uh, will be coming online which allow for better community mapping to determine so-called community mapping to determine what is fully available, how services are similar or dissimilar, and what are the gaps in those services for a given population. Over the past few years we've seen uh, the proliferation of such things as GIS mapping that can simultaneously overlay things like geographical populations with the income levels among that population with social services per square mile with that population and, and the like. And social networking has 
um, also come on strong to help us identify existing connections and, and also to make new ones. Social network mapping, like the work being done by orgnet.com, that's O-R-G-N-E-T.com, is helping to bring those two together in an even more meaningful way. Um, if you add mobile devices into the mix and you create something even more powerful and useful, you will create something even more powerful and useful in, in, in real time. For example, there's a volunteer project in Boston's Chinatown called Speakeasy that signs up bilingual English-Chinese speakers. These are just uh, average, everyday folks who happen to be bilingual, not agency staff. And they agree to take calls from Chinese immigrants or other non-English non speakers during a given time period and to connect them directly with relevant social service providers and provide translation on three-way calls using only their cell phones. And as the volume, the type, the location of those calls are monitored, um, potentially in real time, you know, that's very, very useful information to help coordinate overall services in a given geographical location. Um, this is not currently happening, but, but the potential is there, and I, I believe it shortly will be happening. So overall, the, the combination of advanced community mapping, social networking, and, and mobile services will eventually go a long way to help resolve that you know, local coordination and service redundancy problem that most communities face, and also offer um, more robust systems to address the unexpected real-time needs arising out of uh, severe humanitarian crises like uh, Katrina, the Southeast Asian tsunami, and the devastating earthquake in, in Pakistan. Okay, well, what about open systems? I talked a little bit before about systems such as open source software, and that just means that everyone has access to the underlying code that various software applications run on and can tweak tweak that code to meet their specific needs if they have appropriate software coding and implementation skills. Already we have some, real, some really wonderful open source and low-cost software in the social sector like NGO in a box and civic space and the trend toward further digital inclusion will continue to move forward I believe uh, hopefully far beyond the current roughly 17 percent global internet penetration rate Plus, as, as handheld devices um, and computer processing power moves further into every nook and cranny of the globe and we move into kind of a post-PC world, and projects like the One Laptop Per Child effort and others in the developing world continue, I think we're going to see the introduction of even cheaper and more robust mobile embedded devices on our person and in our environments. Uh, the environments that we inhabit, which will in then increase the demand for free and low-cost software to support them. Down the road, it's entirely possible that we will not only have the ability to access free and low-cost software and tools um, to mostly meet our needs, emphasis on the, the mostly, um, as is currently the case with, with open source software, but that we will also be able to design that software ourselves. Right now, we're, we're still in a phase where customizing software for a particular need is still very, very geeky and, and, and not very seamless. Once we have resolved the software and tools that actually work together easily problem, 
the next phase is likely to be a, a kind of a bottom-up design stage, or at least I hope. That means that everyone from the executive director of an organization to clients themselves will be able to design technology, enable platforms and, and tools, and share them with others. And ideally to put them to use immediately in, in the support of a real and pressing need on, on the ground. And that is the ultimate open system. Uh, you know, I know this sounds a little bit optimistic and, and utopian, but uh, definitely stay tuned. Okay, uh, I'll take your word for it, at least uh, for now. Tell us about what you've called more powerful and direct connections between people and organizations. What does that mean? Well, by that I mean the existing social sector model of relying on intermediaries to fund programs and to determine what gets the public's attention um, is in the process of being circumvented. Nonprofits have typically relied on funders to determine what gets funded and what doesn't, and the mainstream media uh, to determine what gets publicized or what gets a, a public airing. So the walled gardens of you know, funders, programs, and media are finally now beginning to be broken down. And uh, programs are going directly to the public, both to fundraise and promote themselves. And traditional intermediaries are being bypassed. Let me give you a couple of examples. There is a web-based organization called, appropriately, DonorsChoose.org that allows uh, teachers and educators to post small educational projects uh, requesting funding for those projects from individuals like you and me, uh, all done on the web. And these are projects that either school districts or departments won't or can't fund. Uh, by and large, the projects posted on Donors Choose are funded uh, pretty rapidly. And um, that's primarily because teachers can make their case directly to the public and, and don't have to go through existing bureaucracies like school systems and foundations that don't often offer quick and easy solutions for these small-scale projects um, to be funded and supported. Another um, good example is an organization called Kiva.org, that's K-I-V-A.org, that allows investors to lend small amounts in the $50 to $100 range to poor entrepreneurs in the developing world directly. Um, instead of these up-and-coming and would-be entrepreneurs having to try and maneuver the local banking institutions or deal with loan sharks, they are instead vetted and nominated by international microloan agencies. And people like you and me can loan a small amount to help these entrepreneurs you know, as far away as the other side of the world um, get started at a, you know, a reasonable finance rate. And Kiva helps to forge what is, you know, a really powerful person-to-person -person connection, something that, that banks just don't do, by allowing us to see their picture, to hear their story, and to get an update on their on their prog progress. And you know, that's just that's just really powerful stuff. As people become more comfortable connecting directly to make investments and donations and provide other types of support. And as some of the supporting trends uh, I mentioned above, like better transparency and needs mapping or community mapping, increase the overall level of trust between those needing funds and those doing the funding, we're going to see uh, less of a need for traditional funders and other intermediary institutions, I predict. 
um, and you know an evolution in those existing institutions, which will hopefully result in greater efficiency and capital flows all around. In, in addition, over the next decade, we may indeed see technology-enabled, uh, quote-unquote, smart micro-lending that allows capital flowing seamlessly from you, your, or my bank account, voluntarily, of course, but that capital being put to use toward the greatest need when it is needed. So instead of you or I making a generic pledge to the Red Cross for tsunami relief, with neither of us knowing how much is needed or ultimately how our money will be used, um, smart money and smart goods will be directed where they are most needed today. That means a donation that I make to the Red Cross or my local homeless shelter could flow um, bi-directionally or multi-directionally back and forth um, depending on the changing needs day by day. And what about media? Well, many folks are familiar with Web 2.0 enabled user generated free and low cost content. Um, you know, things like YouTube, blogs, podcasts, and wikis are, are all the rage. So anyone with a clever idea has the potential to create a media campaign or fundraising campaign to generate more exposure than you used to be able to get via um, mainstream publications, high-profile publications like the New York Times or on broadcast TV and, and radio. Add the mobile device element to that and a so-called semantic web where devices are helping us to find other people and things aligned with our interests on our behalf without us having to tell them, um, and it completely shifts the paradigm. Instead of, uh, you know, say a star being created by publicists and media appearances, sponsors, etc., which is currently the case, we're entering an era when we can truly be the creators of our own destiny and tell our stories directly. And the challenge uh, will no longer be how I can get, say, Time Magazine to cover my end global poverty campaign, but how I can align my message with the things that millions of people uh, will care about and then offer a seamless mechanism by which they can make uh, a donation and, and, know, and know how their money is being applied and when it's being applied uh, directly, speaking to me and, and my organization directly. Um, and then finally, then, you know, they will know what the results were of their individual donation, um, not just by what the funders say, or the organization says, but by real people um, that their money went to support. And it's those you know, very powerful one-on-one -on -one connections that the current system doesn't support and, and why I think they will eventually be replaced. Well, that does sound kind of utopian. Uh, why should nonprofits care about it now? Indeed, you know, it is. But again, look how far we've come in just the last decade alone. If you had told a nonprofit organization that they could have a virtual office in a place like Second Life a decade ago, they would have said you were nuts, and, and many <laughs> will still say you're nuts, but um, it's possible. Um, and tomorrow, not having a virtual office may seem like nuts, just as having a website today is considered standard practice. As far as why the social sector should care, 
for too long, you know, technology, innovation, and design has been top-down and, and trickle-down. Nonprofits and NGOs have reacted to technology and not been able to fit comfortably in, in the driver's seat of, of innovation. As some of the trends I outlined uh, potentially emerge and, and evolve, for the first time ever, nonprofits may finally be in a position to take charge of their destiny, basically and think, and for us to think of ourselves as creators, to view technology as an empowerment tool and not as uh, just an expense line item in the, in the budget. And that's a, that's a huge shift in thinking, um, which in and of itself could, could change everything, if indeed we do live in a world um, that is technology driven. Second, we, we owe it to the people that we serve as nonprofits and NGOs to do the best we possibly can to improve our services, to be efficient, and to increase our impact on the, on the world. And it's therefore imperative that we make sure we're looking over the horizon at new opportunities and trends that allow us to do just that. That's true, but at the same time, in this climate of dramatic change, it's really hard to find fixed points to take stock of all these changes and to use those fixed points to map future opportunities. No doubt, you know, it's more easily said than done. That's, that's why we have crazy people like me and, you know, organizations like N10, uh, Compumenter, NetSquared, NPower, Aspiration, CTCNet, and a, and a whole host of others providing technology assistance uh, specifically to the nonprofit and, and NGO sectors. Okay, uh, finally, what are the other major technology-related challenges facing nonprofits in the context of these future trends? First, I have to say that while there are many, many challenges, this is a time of unprecedented opportunity. The amount of people out there focusing on leveraging technology for the social good is rising dramatically. And the barriers, thankfully, to technology entry for even the smallest nonprofits and NGOs are getting lower um, day by day. This, this combined with the amount of creative energy out there should give us really tremendous reason to hope and I am personally very hopeful. Um, I couldn't be more excited by the current opportunities to apply our, our smarts and our hearts toward high-impact social change. Having said that, I, I think one of the greatest challenges on the horizon is really the old thinking that technology is the dominion of the business and research worlds, um, that the social sector is basically a, a free rider looking for handouts and, and lacking the innovative mind to create technology-enabled solutions for itself. I don't, I, I don't believe this for a second, um, really. While you know, I'd be first, the first to admit that nonprofits are less well-resourced than many other innovators, um, you know, that surely doesn't mean that they can't become an innovation leader in, in the world of technology. And in fact, I would argue that some of the best innovators are those who have innovated out of necessity and not for commercial or academic rewards. They believed that they could innovate, and, and they did. And um, Craigslist is, is a great example of that. So bottom line, our, you know, our thinking really needs to change. And funders of the social sector need to start seeing the benefits of supporting technology innovation on the ground and in, in, in communities uh, directly, and not just viewing technology as hardware and computer networks or software that provide back office support to, to an organization. 
they, they really need to begin to view innovation as a potential cost-saving and even revenue-generating stream and not just a, as an expense. Finally, I, I guess I would say that we need to not get too caught up, uh, even though that's what I've been doing over the last half an hour, in, in, in seeing technology as presenting the best and the only answers to the big social challenges ahead. Even though most of what we've been discussing is, you know, social sector empowerment through technology, only people can muster, you know, the wisdom and courage to use technology well. And that will always be the case, regardless of how cool or useful the technology itself uh, becomes. Well said. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. It's really been a great pleasure, John. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for having me. This is John Powers, and I've been speaking with Paul Lamb, Man on a Mission. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to a presentation from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford. For additional practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, at www.ssireview.org. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Jeremy Glenn. Our website editor was Liz Evans. The series producer is Bernadette Clavier. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll be joining us next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.